0: energized about over the years identifying the longings that God strategically designed the human heart with and then coming into agreement with his purpose for that longing there's a bit of confusion in the lives of many believers about those longings are we supposed to repent of them or are we supposed to ask God to release his glory on them I mean what do we do with those longings I've identified seven longings, not that there's not more, but this is just seven that we're uh, focusing on in this teaching. Paragraph A. These seven longings draw us to him when we understand them and we relate to him uh, uh, with understanding of these longings. They reflect his glory in us. They are the longing for the assurance that we are enjoyed by God. I don't know of any other longing in the human heart more powerful than that craving even to have the assurance that God actually enjoys us. Not just that he stamped our passport and we go to heaven when we die, but he actually enjoys the relationship. Now, one thing will change your life dramatically. At least it did mine. Number two, the longing in our heart to be fascinated. The whole uh, entertainment industry is based on that human longing. The longing to be beautiful. Now, men don't use that word. We use the word to be cool. The longing to be great. And there's a way to walk out that longing that's biblical. There's a way to approach that longing in a non-biblical way. We repent of that, but we don't repent of the longing itself. The longing for intimacy with God, but without any shame in it. That deep two-way interchange of the secrets of his heart and the secrets of our heart. And God being involved in the relationship at a deep level without shame, but knowing everything about us. The longing for wholeheartedness and the longing for significance that has lasting impact. Every human being, believer or unbeliever, they have these longings built into their human spirit by God's design. And these longings create confusion in a lot of folks. They don't know quite what to do with them or how they're uh, supposed to be fulfilled. Paragraph B, each longing is an ex- of these seven, and again, there's, there's more that could be put on this list. They are expressions of God's personality. The re- reason we long for greatness is because God is great. The great God put that longing in every single person. They, say, they use different terms, but it's the longing for greatness. The longing to be passionate is because God is passionate. He is fully engaged in the things of his kingdom. Fully engaged. He made us like that. It's an expression of who he is. These longings enable us to walk in a deep partnership with him. And again, the more that we understand them and we give ourselves, uh, we ask the Holy Spirit to broaden them and to bring them under Holy Spirit's leadership, the deeper our experience with God, our, our fellowship with Him is. Now, we can't remove these longings by repenting of them. You can't repent of the longing. We can repent of seeking to fulfill them in the wrong way, and we must repent of that. You'll never get free of the longing for greatness. You can dull that thing and dim it and hide it best you can. It will always be in the human spirit. But you got to repent of pursuing greatness outside of the will of God. The enemy has a counterfeit for every one of these longings. And that's the uh, essence of temptation, is to get us to fulfill those longings outside of our relationship with Jesus and outside of the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now paragraph D, lest we get too idealistic about that, about this, these longings are only fulfilled in part in this age, but they are fulfilled, but in part. Bubba love of the good news, which you're well aware of, you're gonna live billions of years, and these longings will be in you for billions of years. And you'll experience the fullness of them in the resurrection, but it's the part we're focused on now is the partial fulfillment, but that's substantial though not total. I uh, like to uh, talk about it in the context of these two phrases, the superior pleasures of the gospel and the inferior pleasures of sin. That's kind of a strange uh, terminology, but what I mean by that, that as we seek to answer these seven longings in our relationship with Jesus, we become more fascinated By who he is. And again, it's not in fullness, but it's only in part. But that part is real. It brings a sense of of pleasure and fulfillment in our heart. Though again, partial, but substantial. I have found that the way to get free from the domination of the inferior pleasures of sin. Because you know, sin is pleasurable, but only for a season. It's an inferior pleasure, but it's a real one, and it's a temporary one. And some uh, people, the way they approach the inferior pleasures of sin, that's the only ones they're focused on, so it's the primary pleasure to them. It's the only one they got in front of them. They uh, try to deny that pleasure. They say no to it, and if they love Jesus, they're resisting it, and they're gritting their teeth. and No, 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 and they're trying to drive that, that inferior pleasure out of their emotions. But what the Holy Spirit does, he approaches it differently. It's like, you know, the word picture, he comes and taps you on the shoulder. I mean, not actually, but just says, turn your attention around here. Experience the superior pleasures of walking in these longings. I mean, even partially, you begin to experience the superior pleasures then you'll have far more success in turning around and rejecting and renouncing and refusing the inferior pleasures of sin. But if all that you have is a vision that sin is pleasurable and you must not yield to it, you're gonna have a really hard time staying, living in dominion over that. But if we're in pursuit of a whole other set of pleasures, we can turn around our attention and reject and repent of sin far more effectively. The analogy I've used over over the years is like if this room, you know, turn all the lights off, the room's full of darkness. You can't open the window and take a bucket full of darkness and try to empty the room of darkness. It doesn't work that way. The way you get rid of darkness is turn on the light. And the way that darkness diminishes in our experience is by focusing on light, Yes, we do repent of the darkness, but repenting of darkness without going forward in our experience of the light, we're not going to get very far in our repentance. Well, let's look at longing number one. And uh, I have a book on this, uh, uh, myself and Deborah Hebert, who will be sharing tomorrow, called The Seven Longings of the Heart. And uh, you can get it free on the internet, I mean on our website, we have a uh, e-copies of it if you want for free. You can get it in our bookstore if you want a, uh, a hard copy of it. But I want to encourage you to take these subjects and study them out more. I mean, my book's small, but I mean, these are vast subjects far beyond anything that's written in this book that myself and Deborah wrote. Longing number one. These are just, I'm only gonna spend a minute, or a few moments on each one. I'll spend more on longing one and just real brief on the other six. The assurance of being enjoyed by God. Now, you might just say it in the typical way, the confidence that God loves us. And I like that, confidence that God loves us. I use that phrase a bit. But I want to make it a little stronger, the assurance he enjoys you. Because a lot of folks believe that God loves them, but they can't connect with the, act, the fact he actually enjoys them while they're maturing. They have this idea that, Once they fully mature or in the resurrection in heaven, then God will fully enjoy them. But between now and then, he's just kind of, you know, uh, being very, very patient all the time, kind of holding his breath going, oh, one more time, I'm forgiving you, you know, or 10,000 times in a row, can't we ever get past this? And I, I have good news for you. That's not the posture of God's heart relating to his children. I'm talking to those that are sincere about Jesus and following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people can use this teaching or this idea and they can reinforce compromise and they have a cavalier attitude toward compromise. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's always a group that's going to do that. I'm talking about people like the vast majority, if not all of you in this room. You're very serious about obeying Jesus, but you're coming up short. And you're recommitting yourself, and you're coming up short in areas. And how does God feel about you while you're growing? Very important subject. Well, you were created with a longing to be delighted in by God. I believe that's the most powerful longing in your heart. For an unbeliever, too, whether they have language for it or not, The most powerful longing of the human heart is the idea that the ultimate, the supreme, that the God of the universe would not just invite them into his kingdom but actually enjoy the relationship. That is, nothing is more powerful than that reality. In many world religions, which are false religions, there's only one way to God. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the work of his death and resurrection and all that he's about. That is the only way to salvation. But the religions of the earth, are, are they're answering, they're trying to answer that longing for God to accept them, but more that God would actually enjoy them. One of my favorite verses is John 15, verse 9. It's the one I, I reference more than any other verse in my teaching over the years. If I had to pick one uh, verse, if someone said, what verse do you talk most about? I'd say, well, I talk about many, hundreds of Bible verses, but here's the one I probably reference the most, John 15, 9. Jesus makes the most remarkable statement. He says, as the Father loved me, I've loved you the same way. I mean, that is like, what? And in, in essence, he's saying, in the same intensity that my Father loves me, that's how I love you. I mean, this, is, this can't be possible. W- w- what does this mean? I mean, this is the foundation stone Jesus is giving them of his relationship with him. And by the way, about an hour later, he said, Every one of you will deny me tonight. So Jesus wasn't in some kind of illusion about how mature they were. But he said, I want you to know, I know you're gonna deny me tonight, but I want you to know I feel about you the way my Father feels about me. I mean, this is just outside of my comprehension. Same intensity. Paragraph B, this longing to be enjoyed by God. The assurance that we're enjoyed is answered by understanding God's emotions for us. You know, God has emotions. He has desires. He has affections that are towards his people. He doesn't just forgive us, stamp our passport, says, okay, you're in the family. You're in the kingdom. Don't bother me too much, but hey, I forgave you. What else do you want? No, it's not like that. He longs as a father for relationship. I believe that the strongest, the most uh, powerful stronghold in the mind, negative I'm talking about, is the fear of rejection by God. The trauma of shame, which is uh, very parallel to the fear of rejection, the idea that God would reject me, or I would feel the trauma of shame before the most powerful being in the universe. A terrifying uh, uh, stronghold. The enemy constantly exploits our lack of understanding to get us to yield to that. So that fear of rejection has a stronghold, even in the minds of many believers. Paragraph C, now essential to grasp this point of God's assurance of enjoying us is this idea There's a vast difference between rebellion and spiritual immaturity. Meaning one guy is rebellious against God. Another guy is sincere. I mean, he loves Jesus, but he stumbles in the the very same uh, activity. He might do the same thing, the man rebellion, but has a very different attitude. When he stumbles, he hates it. He rises up and says, oh, Lord, this is not what is, uh, I'm about. I declare war on this. I confess it. I resist it. But the fact is he did the same activity. Very different attitude. The analogy that uh, I uh, like to use is the, the sheep and the pigs both get in the mud. But when the sheep are in the mud, they're kicking to get out. They're trying to get out, but they're still stuck. They're crying out to the shepherd and then says, help me. And the shepherd comes and helps. And they're kicking hard. You get the, that little pig out of this mud, <clears throat> you look the other way, they'll go right back to the mud hole. They're looking for mud holes to get into. Very different, but they're both in the mud is the idea. God's angry at rebellion, persistent rebellion. He loves the sinner, but he's angry at rebellion. I mean, there's more to say to, than, than just that sentence, but that's a big subject. But God actually, here's the good news, he actually feels affection and enjoys the relationship of a sincere believer. Even while they're stuck, he actually still enjoys them. Beloved, he doesn't just enjoy you when you get the breakthrough in every area. Enjoy the relationship. It's like, it's like parents. God loves us way more than we love our children. And a father, a mother sees their five-year-old, their 10-year-old acting out in immaturity. They don't define their whole relationship with their child, their 15-year-old, by the, by the failure, by the, the wrong behavior. They still love the relationship. though They don't like the area that they're walking in, this area, but they still love the relationship. They still love the person. They love their child, and God says, well, if you... Being evil can love with that distinction. How much more can I love? I can love far better than you can. I can see the difference between rebellion and immaturity. Paragraph D. And again, this is longing number one is the one we're going to, I'll spend most time, uh, more time on this than any of the other six. This is the one, I mean, the other ones are glorious, but I just love. I love being loved by God. I mean to say I love loving him and I love being loved by him, but so do you. And the enemy wants to get in between that relationship and kind of put smoke in our eyes or fog in our eyes so we can't see clear so we don't get so we don't have confidence. Because beloved, if I get confident that God enjoys me even in my weakness, when I sin, I will run to him instead of run from him. The enemy knows that, but if I'm, if I'm confused on this, when I sin and I repent, I'm still going to go hide out in shame for a while and try to, like, you know, make things right for a while, you know, get, maybe put myself on spiritual probation for a few weeks, a few months, then come back with confidence, and beloved, that's legalism, but it's when we fail. And we stand before the Lord and we call sin, sin. We repent of it. We renounce it. But the sting of the failure, we steal. It's still lingering in our heart powerfully. But we take God at his word, the fullness of his heart, the work of the cross. We stand in confidence. Here I am, your beloved one, the one who loves you. Yes, my love is weak. But you see me. You see the cry of my heart to be yours, even in my weakness. And the Lord says, oh, I enjoy the relationship. Yes, that area I want to see corrected, but beloved, good news. When God corrects us, it's not rejection. Correction is not rejection. Notice here the verse in Proverbs 3 at the end of uh, uh, page one. Proverbs 3, verse 12, whom the Lord loves, he corrects in the way of Father, corrects the son he delights in. God says, I delight in you. That's why I'm correcting you. I'm not rejecting you because I'm correcting you. Now, Jesus, in paragraph D, the other point I'll make, he astonished the religious leaders of Israel. In John. I mean, Luke 15. I mean, Luke 15 is a classic chapter. Luke 15 is the chapter of the lost son, the prodigal son, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And in Luke 15, and you want to make that, I mean, Christianity 101, it's Jesus was telling the leaders of Israel how God feels When a sinner repents, not just the first time they repent, every time they repent, the lost coin, the message is, that when the coin is found, the the message is about the father. He's rejoicing. He's not going, oh, boy, here we go again, another forgiveness round. The lost sheep, the shepherd is rejoicing when the sheep is found. The lost son, the father is rejoicing when the son is found. Jesus is saying this. Pharisees are absolutely enraged that the idea that the transcendent, most holy God could actually enjoy people before they were as holy as the Pharisees who were not really holy. They had an external holiness. And Jesus said, I have good news for you. The Father is like this. He's rejoicing, I mean, from the moment... The recovery is found. I mean, it is established. God doesn't just love you after a season of probation. I mean, he, I mean, we know He loves us the whole way through. He doesn't just enjoy the relationship after a season of, prob- of uh, probation. He actually enjoys the relationship at the moment of the sincere repentance. You know, I, I over my over the years, particularly in my younger years, I said this. I quit saying it some years, many years ago. But when I was young and younger in the Lord, in my you know 18, 19, 20, I I would, I mean, I was on fire for the Lord, and I'd stumble in a sin, and I'd go, "Go, oh God, I can't believe it!" And like the Lord, was like, "Well, there's a whole lot more where that came from." <laughs> I thought because I was shocked, God was shocked. Yeah, it was just, you know, a a statement of my pride that I was so shocked. It's like the Lord says, what are you so shocked about? There's a whole lot more there. You'll see, you look back over the years, you'll see, but I'm not shocked because you're shocked. I know, I knew what I was getting into when I called your name. That's what the Lord could say to us. I knew what I was getting into when I called your name. You didn't know, but I knew. And Peter, I mean, had the wrestling match of, uh, you know, of the year. Jesus says, you'll deny me tonight. And Peter said, everybody but me. He goes, Peter, especially you. He goes, no, 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 Lord, you don't get it. I am more committed to you. And the Lord says, Peter, in essence, this wasn't the statement, but Peter, there's coming a transformation when you're going to have more confidence in my commitment to you than in your commitment to me. And when you have more confidence in my commitment to you than your commitment to me, you're going to grow a a, much deeper and a more sustained way because you're going to have a confidence to run to me and not from me when you stumble. Boy, the enemy wants us retreating. He wants us retreating. Top of page two. Longing number two. The longing to be Fascinated. There's a craving in the, in the human heart to be fascinated. Now, you maybe haven't ever used those terms. To, be, to marvel, to be awestruck, to be filled with wonder. The human heart loves that. People want, they may call it adventure, they, 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 they want to experience, marvel, the glory, the pleasure of being awestruck. Now, the entertainment industry has identified that longing of the human heart. And they have exploited that longing because they know that we want to be fascinated. I mean, the whole human race does. But I have good news for you that when God reveals God to the human heart, when God the Holy Spirit reveals God the Father or God the Son, when God reveals God, Beloved, that's divine entertainment at its highest. There's something that happens in the human design when the revelation, and I, I don't mean some earth-shattering, you know, radical, once-in-a-life kind of experience. That's not what I mean. I mean just those, that little, those sh- those small little installments, if you will, of the Holy Spirit touching my heart, your heart, with understanding of the beauty of Jesus, just a little bit. So I read the Word, it's like wow, yes, oh, yes, Lord the, Lord, the Holy Spirit, stay with it, stay with it, I'm touching you, and I go, oh, Lord, this is remarkable. The discovery of when we, just a little bit, little bit at a time, discover the beauty of Jesus. When I mean his beauty, I mean his majesty, his power, his wisdom, all of that is under the term beauty. Isaiah 33, He prophesied, the prophet Isaiah, your eyes will see the king and his beauty. That's the inheritance of every believer. Now, only in part in this age, but fullness in the age to come. But beloved, I'm on a journey, a Holy Spirit treasure hunt to experience more of the treasure and the fascination of this man. He's fully God, fully man. I want to experience more. Paragraph B, there's nothing more pleasurable. There's nothing more exhilarating. Nothing is more exhilarating to the human frame than when God reveals God to the heart. Something does something to our inner man. When God the Spirit makes known the Son. Just, again, I mean just little installments, just if you allow me to use that word, where the Holy Spirit gives us moments of inspiration. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit searches all things. Yes, the Spirit even searches the depths of God. The next verse, to show it to you. Beloved, the Spirit, who is as much God as the Father and the Son, He has discerned the depths of the Father's heart to give you and I just insight into it. In this age, a little bit, in the age to come, a lot more. But I tell you, the little bit in this age will radically change the way we think and feel. It's the most pleasurable thing that's available to a human being in this age is when God reveals God to them. Paragraph C, John 16. Jesus said, I tell you about the Holy Spirit. He'll glorify me. He'll take what's mine. He'll give it to you. That's what he's coming. I call him the escort. The Holy Spirit, the escort into that divine treasury of the beauty of Jesus. He makes known Jesus. Paragraph D, without a sense of awe, as a believer, or an unbeliever, it's true of an as well, but even, I'm talking to believers right now, without having a sense of awe, and I don't mean you have to be awestruck struck where you're unmoved. I mean, you can't even function. I don't mean to that degree. Though there might be moments in your life where that happens for a, a brief moment. Without a sense of awe, we live aimless. We live spiritually bored. Many, So many believers today are living in spiritual boredom. They have the most beautiful man that ever walked the earth. I mean fully God. I'm not talking about external movie star beauty in that sense. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this man has the most indescribable beauty. His father... Has indescribable, transcendent beauty. We sang about it tonight. We got an open Bible. We got the Holy Spirit living in us. And yet so many believers are living spiritually bored. Because you're filling their time and their and their mind with so many other things, even legitimate things, but even legitimate things. Not they're all bad, it's not like they're always bad, the things they fill their mind with, but it's not making room to live with a touch of fascination. Without fascination, you live spiritually bored. And a spiritually bored believer is vulnerable, far more vulnerable to darkness. A fascinated believer is far more empowered to resist sin. I mean, the the great prevailing uh, a dark thing that's happening in our culture is this pornified society that, I mean, the culture is being swept away with pornography. Beloved, the answer to pornography, though I don't want to be simplistic, but at the core, it's going to be in a superior pleasure. Telling people how bad immorality is, and I believe that uh, uh, interacting with pornography is immorality. So why I haven't done anything, that's still immorality in my opinion. But engaging in immorality, you're not gonna break free of it by gritting your teeth and saying, I gotta stop, gotta stop, gotta stop. Oh, I wanna stop, I gotta stop. But here I go again. We've gotta replace it with a superior pleasure. I encourage uh, believers struggling with this, and I don't wanna condemn them. I don't wanna whip them. But I don't wanna just make it a small, well, everyone's doing it, it's not a big deal. It's a really big deal. Of course, It's a huge deal. You will lose so much, of what God has for you in this age. I mean, God will love you, but you'll lose so much of it if you don't face that. I'm talking to the folks struggling with it. Now, I'm not trying to condemn you or put you down, but there's, there's a level of fascination and a vibrant heart that's within the reach of every believer, but we've got to touch some of the fascination to get free of that other stuff. Now, I didn't mean to go off on a bunny trail on pornography, but maybe uh, it's an appropriate thing to do. I don't look at one sin as the big sin and then the other sin. I'm just looking at the glory of living fascinated with Jesus a little bit. I don't mean so overwhelmed in fascination you can't function. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just that look at paragraph E, those small measures of Holy Spirit inspiration that tenderizes our heart just a little bit. But over the days, over the weeks, over the months, those little, I'll just call it for the lack of a better word, these little flashes of the glory of God, meaning, oh, that's what that verse means. Ooh, yes. And not that you got to make those noises in a prayer room. <laughs> the guy next to me, I go, hey, I know you're enjoying the Lord, but I'm trying to too, so I love you, you love me. Shh, okay. <laughs> or go over and sit by her, she didn't mind. Okay, those little flashes of the glory of God. Those little moments of inspiration, and I don't know the best way to say it. Over time, they will change us emotionally. They will change us emotionally. Longing number three, the longing to be beautiful. Like I said, I mean, men don't really look at that and say it, but put whatever word you want on it, the longing to be cool, the longing to, you know, things are really, you're really looking sharp today, whatever it is, God built that, the beautiful God built Put that longing in the human spirit. And again, the culture is exploiting that. I mean, there's a a, a desire for beauty is a biblical and godly thing, but some, our culture is wanting to so emphasize it where they're breaking people's lives in the pursuit of it. Every one of these longings have a counterfeit or a, a pursuit of that longing outside of the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Look what Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 17. He goes, let the beauty of God be on us. Beloved, that's, that's what the salvation, an aspect of salvation, not all of salvation, is about the beauty that God possesses is the beauty he imparts. There's an external, there's an internal dimension. Now obviously in this age, we're focused on the internal, but the external's still a dimension there. But in the age to come, even the external comes to fullness. The beautiful God created you to long for beauty. The longing for it is not wrong. The pursuing of how to walk it out can be wrong if we overdo this and overdo that. And the enemy always wants to get us focused on the counterfeit. Look at Isaiah 63, I mean 61. Here's what the messiah does he gives beauty for ashes and that's not just a figurative term he literally gives beauty he takes the the ash heap of our broken lives i mean you know what ashes are it's like the wood was burning out it's like so many lives are burning out with the wrong fires completely consumed with the wrong fires and only ashes are the result after years God says, I'll take those ashes. Tell you what I'll do. I'll take the ashes of your misspent passion and your broken life. I'll give you beauty, and you give me your broken life filled with ashes. I Maybe mean, an exchange, but it's not just the generosity that's so obvious. I'm talking about the point. It's beauty that he gives. It's real. It's not just figurative beauty. Paragraph B. Now, one of the great expressions of that beauty is in our resurrected body. You know, in the age to come, you're going to have a glorious, transformed body of indescribable beauty, and you will possess that beauty for billions and billions and billions of years. It's on God's mind. Beauty is on God's mind. You're not the one that came up with the idea of it. He did. Everything around him is the ultimate expression, the sanctuary of his beauty, the beautiful God. And he's gonna bring his people in the fullness of it. Paragraph C, now, I'm not limiting it to inner beauty, but the focus in this age is limited, is, is, uh, I mean, is uh, inner beauty. The focus is not the limitation. Peter talked about, 1 Peter 3, the incorruptible beauty a beauty that a believer possesses by responding to the Lord in the right way. It's very, very precious to God. God is moved by it. But not only that, it's the fact it is beautiful. It's incorruptible. It's a beauty that can never lose. And eventually that our body will reflect that beauty in the resurrection. But it's not only beauty then. There's beauty now, even in the natural. I mean, I'll make a a measured statement that cultivating inward beauty has an effect on people's external beauty. You take a person with a bright spirit that has confidence with God, it actually changes a dimension of their external countenance and the way they carry themselves, and so it affects their life in a dramatic way. But that's not my biggest point. My biggest point is that the longing for beauty is actually a God-given longing. Our culture is obsessed with physical, not inner beauty, but physical beauty is, God has that on his mind too. Again, he has that in his priority, but that's not something somebody says, I need to repent of it, I just want to be ugly. I go, why? I've had, literally had people say this over the years, these kind of things. Well, I just want to, He's so lost in God I'm ugly. I go, "But what if God wants you beautiful?" Like what? God couldn't want me beautiful? God is holy. I go, well, "So beauty and holy are opposites?" Well, yeah, isn't it? Isn't looking ugly more holy? I don't think so. I'm really glad my wife doesn't buy that doctrine. Well, that's a big subject. All these are big subjects. I'm just giving I'm just giving just, just little whisper introductions to them. Because the quest for beauty isn't wrong. It's actually put in us. And when people line up with that, they go, when they settle that, they go, oh, now don't be consumed with it, but don't think it's evil that you actually try to hide from God, that you actually long for it. Like, God, I don't really long for it. Now, most of you in this room, that's not even where you're living, but there's always a a few real devout folks that really get lost in in, in some confusion about this subject. Now, how you walk out physical beauty to what extreme and how far you go, that's a vast subject bigger than this conference, praise the Lord, because I don't have guts to break that down in detail. (laughs) But there are some principles that that can be gleaned in that. Top of page three. The fourth longing. The longing to be great. The great God created you to be great. He really did. Matter of fact, in Matthew 5, verse 19, he says, whoever teaches, whoever does the commands and teaches them that man or woman will be called great in the kingdom. Whoever. Doesn't matter if you've got a big following. The whoever is not about your education, your financial base, how many people follow your ministry. The Lord says, you obey my commands and you convince other people to obey them. Maybe your influence is only three people and you are listening to you. And they're all just your three grandchildren. That works. You're a whosoever, and you're inspiring people. So I don't know, nobody else is paying attention to me. He didn't say you had to have a big following. He said you had to obey them and call others to it. He said, when you stand before me, is what he's talking about. I will call your life, and I will call your choices great. I will proclaim it openly that your lifestyle choices and your response to me is great in my eyes. This isn't about in heaven strutting in front of people. This is about the great God openly declaring how he feels about the way you loved him in this age. He goes, oh yeah, go for that. And he goes on in Matthew 20. He goes, whoever desires to be great. He goes, let him be a servant. Here's how we would think he would say, whoever desires to be great, tell him to repent. Jesus didn't say that. Because you desire to be great, just pursue it the right way. Pursue it in the right, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a way to pursue it by serving, by obeying. There's a time frame, because your greatness, greatness may not be manifest in this age. You know, I mean, even if it is a little bit, your true greatness won't be manifest in the age to come. But the longing for the greatness, Jesus addressed a number of times. Right here, I give you two examples, and there's several others. People go, I don't want to be great, I just want to be faithful. I go, well, if you're faithful, you'll be great. You won't be great in this age very possibly. Probably you won't. Probably nobody will know you were faithful except for just a very few. But beloved, for billions of years, your life will be pronounced and your quality of life decisions will be pronounced as great in God's sight. I love that. I unashamedly want to be great. I remember I first said that about 25 or 30 years ago to the church that I was pastoring. I go, I unashamedly want to be great. I just want to do it the right way and I don't mind waiting until the age to come but I'm going after it. And they all laughed. I go, I'm not joking at all. I'm absolutely framing my life around this. I'm going after this. When I stand before the Lord, I'm expecting him to say, you took that seriously? Yes, I did take that seriously. I'm willing to give up a whole lot of other options because I buy this. I'm not repenting of greatness. I want to pursue it in the right way. And trying to force your greatness over others and in the eyes of others is the wrong way to pursue greatness. I'm not going to repent of greatness, but I'm going to repent of pursuing it the wrong way because I really want it. Paragraph B, Hebrews 2. The Word says God's crowned the redeemed with glory and honor. Beloved, that sounds like greatness, crowned with glory and honor. Look at paragraph C. Jesus said to the one who overcomes, this is Jesus. I mean, this is just almost unthinkable. If it wasn't Jesus saying it, I'd say, I just don't know how I could believe it any other way. He says, John, Revelation 321, to the overcomer they will sit with me on my throne. Like, what? Jesus, that's, really? Yes, I mean, Jesus, that's almost as intense as you love me like the Father loves you. I mean, I don't know what to do with these. Believe them. Really. Sit with you on your throne. And that that doesn't mean, you know, a million believers all kind of squeeze on one chair. That's not what it means. (laughs) It means that they will be functioning in an expression of his authority that comes from his throne forever. Wow. I I buy this. I go, I'm going for it. He goes, but we're talking about the overcomer. We're not about the guy who's strutting around trying to make a name for himself. We're talking about the man or woman that's overcoming the lust of the flesh and they're giving themselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, to the word of God. And there's a delayed payment program in this, but hey, I don't mind the delayed payment program because the payment lasts for billions of years. So it's delayed a few decades or longer. Lasts for billions of years. I call this sanctified selfishness. <laughs> Looking it to be great. Lord, I want what you want. The Lord says, I put it in you. Of course you do. I want what you want for me, and I'm really glad you want this for me. And the Lord says, I'm really glad if you really pursue this. It's not rhetoric. It's not poetry. It's not cute. It's real. Go after this. Don't just be glad I want it for you. I'm glad if you go for this. But you do it through obedience to the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5, when he said those that obey these commands. He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. Like, okay. And I don't mean, I don't think he says you obey them flawlessly, you never stumble. And those attitudes, the eight beatitudes, et cetera. But I mean, this is remarkable. I want this, Lord. Again, sanctified selfishness. Uh, sanctified being, it's holy to desire what God desires for you. Don't get into some false uh, 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 humility, some religious pride that you're more humble than God is. I've had people say, I don't want rewards. They go, you don't? Are you sure? I don't need rewards. I just love Jesus. So Jesus taught on eternal rewards more than any other person in the Bible. Clearly. Not, there's not even a, a question. He taught on eternal rewards. I, I can't say this is true for sure, this next statement, but I think it's true. I've studied it quite a bit. I've just never added it up. I think he taught on eternal rewards more than everybody else added up together. Maybe it's besides the book of Psalms, but anyway, I'm doing my math right now. I do that later. I shouldn't do that live. <laughs> he taught on eternal rewards. What are eternal rewards? Eternal, a guy says, I've heard it all of my, off 30, 40 years of preaching this, or I've been, I guess I've been preaching this 40 years. The Lord really touched me about this. So when I was about 20 years old, I'm 60 or, uh, right now. I mean, I really got touched by this subject. And I said, I'm going for this thing, Lord. And, and a, a guy says, I hear it over the 40 years. and I'm not into that, I'm just into loving Jesus. I said, well, you know, Jesus taught on eternal rewards more than anybody and maybe more than everybody else put together, it's possible. Said, well, you know, I don't think that's And their, I, their paradigm of rewards is strutting in front of people in heaven. I go, that's not what it's about. If that's your paradigm of rewards, okay, so you don't want them. I appreciate that. That's a wrong paradigm. That's a carnal paradigm of rewards. You know what rewards are at the end of the day? It's Jesus making known how he feels about the way you loved him in this age. I mean, he's the wealthiest man. I mean, he's, he's the king of the age to come. He's king of this age, but uh, I mean, the king of all and we give someone a cup of cold water in his name, he goes, I tell you, I surely tell you, you will by no means fail to be rewarded for this because I'm gonna show you, you will never outgive me. I will show you how I feel about the way you loved me. And I have a whole lot more resource than you do. And he goes, in every cup of cold water, surely, I will outgive you, even in you giving that cup of cold water, I will outgive you every time. He that gives, he shall receive more, and the Lord's going to see to it. He will outgive you on every act of obedience you've ever done because of his generosity, because of the quality of his love. Do you want Jesus to express to you how he feels about the way you love him? I do. It's a glorious reality. Roman numeral six, the fifth one. We long for intimacy without any shame. And what I mean by intimacy, I mean that close interchange with God's heart. What I mean, paragraph A, we're in the middle of page three, the intimacy of knowing and being known by God. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says we know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. So there's a knowing God and a being known by God. But it's, of course God knows everything, but what this means is that God makes clear to you his knowledge of you, meaning he makes you aware of his knowledge of you and in a most positive sense this is meant. He's allowing you to know, not just that he knows the bad things, he actually knows the good things about the cry of your heart. It's a two-way knowing. Look at the end of paragraph A. He understands the secret aspects of our lives that are unknown, that are unnoticed, that are misunderstood by the people closest to you. They can't see what you meant and what you desired. They read it wrong, or they didn't notice it at all. He knows it all. And what he means is he's gonna let you know that he knows it's gonna be part of the relationship. And that happens in part in this age and in fullness in the age to come. Look at paragraph B. This verse is just another one of those that's just so out there. It's just like so glorious. I know my own, John 10, verse 14. My own know me. Catch this. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, my own will know me in the way that me and the Father know each other. Like, what? Lord, you keep saying these these giant statements. What now? Yes. I know my own and my own know me and the parallel is the way me and the father know each other. Like I'll know you and you'll know me and really? I mean and the Holy Spirit would whisper and say, "You can begin to progress in that even in this age." What a glorious reality. Paragraph C, Proverbs, I mean Psalm 25:14, "The secret of the Lord God has secrets, and I don't mean just the names of mysterious angels. Some people think of the secret of the Lord and and it's real kind of abstract, kind of ethereal information about the angels in the spirit realm. I don't think that's mostly what he's talking about, though he might make, I mean, he'll make all those things known in the age to come, but I think he means the things that move my heart, I will make them known to you. You'll feel the power of them, not just have the knowledge of them. Paragraph D it says, I'll rejoice. No, no, I mean, this Paul talked about you and I, believers. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Well, if we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, how much more, God in perfect love, can he rejoice with those who rejoice and have sorrow? Meaning, if he wants us to have that capacity and we have it, how much more does he have that capacity in his relationship to us? Beloved, he rejoices in your victories. He has sorrows in your setbacks. He knows the implications of your greatness way beyond what you do. He's rejoicing with you way beyond what you and I can rejoice, even about our own life and destiny. He knows your intentions to do well, even when you stumbled in that area. He knows how you set your heart to obey, even when the obedience wasn't fully walked out at the level you wanted, but He saw that. Some of those closest to you didn't, but He did. Beloved, He sees the costly sacrifice you make to obey him, moves him. I mean, we could say, well, his sacrifice is so much greater, but he gets all that, but he goes, yeah, but I I see. That costs you to bless that enemy because you loved me instead of paying that enemy back. I, I get that. E, paragraph E, he sees our painful struggles. He sees the pain you and I have in our failures. He didn't look at our failures and say, well, get with it. You deserved it. I told you not to do that. That's how maybe uh, uh, humans relate to each other. He says, no, no, I feel the pain. I see the pain you feel in that failure. I'm with you. I'm weeping with you in that. There's many more dimensions to that. Top of page four. Again, uh, we have a book called The Seven Longings where he developed these a bit more, but these are even there. we just go a, another step or two beyond in, in some of the descriptions. These are glorious, glorious themes. The sixth one, we long to be wholehearted. The passionate God empowers us to be passionate. He says, love me with all of your heart, all of your strength. You know why we are to love God with all of our strength? Because he loves us with all of his strength. But here's the point. I say it in paragraph B and C. You and I cannot function properly emotionally. We won't be emotionally healthy or we won't function in a a proper way emotionally unless we're giving our strength fully to a person and a purpose bigger than us. And that person is Jesus. If I don't have something to die for, I don't have anything to live for. And a lot of believers today, even under the veil of the grace of God, are trying to figure out ways to live carnal and to live half-hearted and magnify grace when grace is meant to give us the ability to be wholehearted and to give us a fresh start every day in our attempt to be wholehearted. Our, not our attempt, our setting of our heart to be wholehearted. Grace isn't about making it uh, a concession so we can live in compromise, beloved, we'll never live in fullness of in compromise. If you don't have something to die for, to give everything to, you don't really have anything to live for. You'll end up living spiritually bored, living half-hearted with the Lord. We were not created to function right half-hearted. And so much of the dumbing down of the gospel today and the dumbing down of the preaching of grace to embolden compromise is absolutely stealing the very vibrancy out of people's hearts. I tell you, wholeheartedness, all of our strength, all of our heart, loving that man. He loves us, having gratitude. Lord, I'm in this all the way, all my time, my money, my energy. Yes, in my failure, you'll forgive me, but I want grace to give more to you, not grace to live half-hearted, There's a vibrancy in our heart that comes by pursuing wholeheartedness. Whether we ever walk out fulfilling uh, full maturity, the pursuit of it is what I'm talking about. If Without it, we'll live spiritually bored. And I tell you, a spiritually bored believer will look all over the nations, many spiritually bored believers. They're so vulnerable to so many more things that the enemy is vomiting on the cultures today. The very end, uh, longing number seven. the longing for significance. In other words, to make an impact, but not just an impact, a lasting impact. Those are two things. Impact is one, lasting impact is two. God designed us to want to make a difference in the lives of people. And now we want our impact bigger and there's nothing wrong with wanting bigger, but don't lose your faithfulness because you're so in pain over how your impact's not that big right? and the way that you want it. Focused on making an impact and let the Lord determine the size of it. Because here's the point. I want to make an impact, and I'm going to let him determine the size of it, but here's the confidence I have that impact will last forever. And that's the same thing as eternal rewards we just looked at a few moments ago. Look at Hebrews 6. God is not unjust to forget anything you've done in loving him. Hebrews 6.10 says, if you if God forgets, forgets even one cup of cold water you gave someone, God would declare himself unjust. He goes, I won't. I will forget one thing, ever. That means whatever I do, I mean the loneliest, most difficult afternoon. It's not to I mean I have to go out and serve somebody, but that afternoon, if I can obey God, whether it's in my private life, seeking him, encouraging someone, just obeying Him in whatever capacity for whatever that hour means. That hour is meaningful even if nobody else appreciated it. Every day is meaningful. I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and come on up if you would. Get ready so for us to respond to this. Beloved, look at this. If anyone's life work which he has built endures on that last day, the Lord will give you a reward, he will show you that he esteems and he remembers the work that you did, the service you did. Let's look at paragraph C. We love to do and to share things that cause other people to be changed, even if, even if the numbers aren't massive, to be blessed, to be enriched, to be helped. John the Apostle said, No greater joy. Something happens in my heart when I see a few people that I've sowed into moving on in God. Again, it may be a few people in your neighborhood, a few people in a home group, a few people at the marketplace, you know, the workplace, maybe your grandchildren. Maybe it's not thousands, maybe it's twos and threes in season. Then the next season is twos and threes. But there's something that happens in you and I. When we're involved in that which actually is affecting people in the will of God. It's a a remarkable thing. And don't wait for the church ministries to show you on the org chart where you serve God. Just say, Holy Spirit. I'm not saying throw off uh, the leadership of the church. That's what I'm saying. Say, Holy Spirit, my city's got a million people in it. You know who they are. Let me impact five of them. I don't need to get a pastor's permission. I I mean, don't wait for the church to call you up, lay hands on you, and tell you that you're this. Just go start serving people. Go do, don't wait for anything. Start now. Now, many of you are obviously already doing it, and there's a joy that we have when we're touching people and we're watching them empowered to do the will of God in their life. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, let's stand before the Lord and let's respond to him. Seven longings. I know I gave you a whole lot of information. Holy Spirit, just as the worship team leads us, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and minister to hearts right now. Lord, we wait on your presence. We ask for your manifest glory right now. Don't ask you to heal bodies, but I ask you to heal hearts right now. We're aiming for the heart, but we always love it when the Lord heals bodies as well. If one of these longings you have said in your heart, I mean, more than one, but if there's even one, you said, you know, I've been in crosswise with the Lord. I've been re of a longing that I know that He wants me to walk out, but just in a biblical way. This is liberating. I want you to respond to the Lord right now, if you will. Just repent and say, Lord, I break my agreement with that wrong idea. I want to be great, but your way, your time. I want the assurance that you enjoy me, Lord any of you would like prayer as you're repenting from one of those areas, or you have another need, you're saying, I want to be really liberated in this one longing. I want to invite you to come forward if you do. We're going to worship for a few moments, and then we'll
1: uh, engage in ministry. Father, I break my Love
0: grace of God to liberate people to enjoy the Lord. Liberate people to love Him. Liberate people to rejoice
1: in His leadership.